The Better Understanding Podcast is an invitation, an open-hearted extended hand to increase our ability to work, lead, and live with one another more effectively. The premise and philosophy of the podcast is that it all begins with understanding ourselves and understanding others. In season one, and with some of the most successful experts and leaders of diversity and inclusion efforts in the world, we explored what it means to lead inclusively. In season two, we are bringing to life our Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Arrive and Thrive, via powerful stories, earned wisdom, and lessons learned from some of the world's preeminent leaders and thrivers. Join me, Susan McEntee Brady, as we explore how to arrive and thrive. I'm so excited to introduce today's Better Understanding podcast guest, Molly Fletcher. As a collegiate tennis player at Michigan State, Molly was always passionate about the sports world and knew she wanted to be a part of it. Through ingenuity and drive, she got her foot in a door usually closed to women and became one of the first female sports agents in the male-dominated industry. She worked her way to president of a top sports agency, negotiated over $500 million in contracts, and earned the moniker, the female Jerry Maguire by CNN. Molly is the author of five books, a podcast host, and one of the most sought-after keynote speakers around the globe. She's also hilariously funny and wise. I've had the pleasure of overseeing major leadership events where Molly has spoken on several occasions. She never disappoints. She has a career of arriving and thriving and is an inspiration to so many. Molly, welcome to the Better Understanding Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. Anytime. I'm a fan, Susan. It's great to be with you. So, Tell our listeners about you. What do you want us to know other than what I just shared? Well, I'm married of 22 years and have three incredible daughters who are freshmen in college, twins, and then a sophomore. And I just feel really, really grateful, really blessed. Me, family is A1 and and excited though to, um, you know, talk certainly too about my career and in hopes that it's something that can unlock and support the people that follow and listen to your show. So let's dive into that. First of all, isn't motherhood like the most humbling thing? (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But you know what? I mean, I loved every second of it. I loved being pregnant, was pregnant with twins. I loved it all. And me, it is the greatest responsibility that we can have as a parent. And I always took it very seriously and still do because the opportunity to influence these young girls and how they show up in the world is enormously important. So I'm the greatest job, the greatest role in my life is certainly being a wife to a wonderful husband, but certainly my girls are, I call them my miracles. Everybody makes fun of me, but. Oh, I love that. And I love that you loved being pregnant. I did too. I felt great. I was like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I actually just recently read something about the best thing we can do for our children is to manifest the life that we love of our own. And for some of us, we all have our different path to manifesting uh, the life that we, that we have and the impact we've had. And I'm curious if you can share, how did your early years influence how you view arriving in particular and how do you view your journey of arriving? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I, I'm not sure I've arrived uh, anywhere yet. I'm on my journey still for sure. But I would say I grew up with two incredible parents in Lansing, Michigan, and, and feel very blessed in that regard. My, my brothers were five years older than me. They were identical twins. 
they were insane. I mean, everybody thought they'd end up in Jackson prison in Michigan, but they didn't. They're both airline pilots, but they were kind of these two guys that I always wanted to keep up with. And, you know, I'll never forget, Susan, I was probably in my early teens. My brothers were, you know, 16, 17. And we went to this local tennis court in Northern Michigan as a family to play tennis. And we were walking out on the tennis court and my, my, brothers and my parents sort of looked at me and said, Hey, you know, tennis is, is we're going to play doubles. It's four. So you're going to be ball girl. And I was like, Oh, well that's a drag. And they're like, yeah, no. So here's the deal. Like we're going to, you just six, you had the net and go get all the balls and then give them to the person that's serving. And I remember an hour and a half, two hours later thinking, kept begging to play with no success and chasing their tennis balls around the court. And I remember walking out and I said, you know what? I just want all you to know, I'm going to beat every single one of you one day. And my parents said, oh, well, that'd be great, honey. That'd be great. And, you know, two years later, I did. And they never beat me again. And they continued to try. But so I grew up in a home where my parents always wanted me to keep going and to try. And their answer to that question in that moment wasn't, or that statement in that moment wasn't, yeah, right. Good luck. It was, well, good. Go for it. And so my brothers would, I come home from school and you know, they'd be on the roof of the garage smoking fake cigarettes. I mean, they'd go to school late, they'd skip class. And I was sort of get, leaving the house early, walking on the sidewalk. So, uh, you know, I think that was a, a big part of my childhood. And tennis absolutely was. I was grateful to play and compete at Michigan State and play at the Big Ten level, which was pretty awesome. But, you know, and then I, I learned my dad was a pharmaceutical sales rep. So he's a sales guy at heart, right? And then my mom was a school teacher for, learning disabled kids in Michigan. But I, when I was, when I was young, I'd go to the grocery store with my mom, Susan, and uh, we'd get there and we had everything we needed, but we didn't get everything we wanted. Not even close. I mean, we were definitely, we weren't, certainly weren't waiting for paychecks, but we weren't, um, you know, going on extravagant trips or ordering Cokes at a restaurant, right? When we sat down for dinner, water was free. So, but you know, my mom, we'd go to the grocery store and she'd have all these coupons. And we'd get to the checkout line, they'd all be expired, most of them. And I'd watch her just work the checkout lady. Like, like just no, I mean, just just grind her. Come on, it's no big deal. I mean, it only expired two weeks ago. I mean, like, come on, like, can't you just come in? You know, me, you, like, let's do this, right? And so at an early age, I was always taught, ask for what you want. Go for it. Believe that, that you can. And so that courage that you talk about so much, Susan, was, was something that I think was unlocked for my for my wonderful parents and my brothers growing up. Isn't it funny? We really do, we really do influence our children and are influenced by the adults in our lives growing up about what we're told is possible, right? Before we know there's a choice. If we have a voice of like, okay, great, go meet, go beat your brothers. That's not us, beat all of us, right? Isn't it amazing? It reminded me of a, of a time I met Gina Davis, the actor who, you know, is in Thelma and Louise. And she tells the story of how she woke up one day in, her, in high school and told her parents that she was going to be a Hollywood actress. And they were like, oh, good, honey. Good. Go do that. <laughs> right. And I'm picturing your mother. But something I just learned about you, I'm picturing the, the checkout counter <laughs> at the grocery store, and it sounds awfully familiar. And I don't know if the right word is audacity or influence or persuasiveness, but it's sort of it's, there's a cleverness about how you particularly bested your own success for yourself. And 
it started with just the belief that something's got to be possible here, right? Like we can have a win-win. So if you were to credit some of the early notions of keeping up with your brothers five years ahead and parents who were like, great, go for it and watching your mom. Um, what do you think is the, what's the practice in Arrive and Thrive or what's the value or what's the strength that you think instilled, was instilled in you the most that you would credit with your thriving? And can you talk a little bit about that? Like, sure. Yeah. I, I think there's probably a couple of things that come up for me. One is just this, this, the power of curiosity, right? The power of what's at risk to ask? What's at risk to ask? And particularly if you do it in a kind way, right? What is really at risk? And then, you know, what's at risk with sort of curiosity? I mean, on my podcast, this is one of the things that I hear consistently from some unbelievable people is curiosity. And to me, I was always inspired to be curious, to find a way. When I was a kid, when I'd jump in a, and wrestle with my brothers, it was one of those things where I knew that I was going to get my head beat in. But if I chose to jump in and then I was in tears and, and a minute later, my dad said, look, you jumped in. So figure it out. So there was that. But the other piece of it was failure is okay. And I think that's a challenge in our environment today, particularly with younger people, is that they live in this world where they take 100 pictures, filter them, pick the one. It takes hours before they post that one photo. And that's not life. That's not real. And so kids, in my opinion, young people generally have this low failure tolerance. And my parents allowed me to fail. And they weren't snowplow parents, as we call in the North, right? I mean. They don't plow the way for you so you have this perfectly groomed path. They would let me stumble and fall. And, and that failure piece builds this level of courage inside of you, this strength that gives you the confidence because you fail and then you get back up. And then you fail again and then you get back up. And all that strengthens that muscle to keep going for Because we're not pushing ourselves enough, in my opinion, if we're not failing from time to time. I'm very interested in the whole concept of failure because uh, I do think we blow it out of proportion as if some, something catastrophic happens when we have an interpersonal or professional quote unquote failure. I'd love to reframe that. I'd love to hear, is this the most important lesson or is there that you've learned over the course of your career? Is this sort of like your silver bullet magic piece of advice, Molly, that you find you tell people is don't be as fearful of failure. And then if you do, what's the rebuttal? So tell us a little bit about the lesson that you've learned along the way that you find you can't help. But mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think certainly going for it and pushing ourselves means we're going to find ourselves in some tough moments, some challenging moments. But when we push through those, we get stronger, we get better. I think the other thing that comes up for me is, is adaptability, right? I mean, Years ago, it was about efficiency and then these phones and it's, it was about efficiency. I think now it's imperative that we can adapt, that we can navigate change, that we can step into discomfort, empathy, compassion, certainly huge. I think too, healthy drive is a drive that has a powerful limitless mindset. It's a drive of curiosity, certainly. It's a drive that, that unlocks resilience inside of us. Resilience is a massive silver bullet, in my opinion, as we navigate life's challenges, moments, opportunities, et cetera. But as we get older in our lives, I think we recognize that there's sort of 
couple enemies of the hammer down life, right? One is overdrive. And I think that if we keep ourselves with purpose at the center of what we do, when we know why we do what we do, to me, it changes what we do. In other words, I actually think purpose and a healthy drive can offset burnout because if you're grinding it, the best of the best, the athletes that I worked with, they love the grind. It brings them joy. They love it. They love that, that drive to get a little bit better every day. And the irony of it, I did a TED Talk on this, is that it's not the drive to achieve. It's the drive to get better. So I think if I had one silver bullet, Susan, it would be this belief that we have to have this inherent, consistent motivation that is anchored in a clear purpose. And this drive to consistently get better every single day. What I'm wondering is what you've found are the enablers to adaptability as you come back to it. So what I'm hearing is the best of the best. And of course, I know your work have the energy to almost compete with themselves and to get better and better. What are, what do you find given all that's going on in the world and all that we have to be pretty overwhelmed by? What are the consistent enablers? for the resilience and the, the uh, get back on the horse. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think I, there's a couple of stages to it, right? Like how do you, how do you unlock drive inside of ourselves, right? It's mindset, it's resilience, it's um, curiosity, but then how do we keep it, right? We've got to have discipline, right? We've got to have, we've got to have connection with others. We've got to manage our energy at some level more than our time. And then I think there's this pinnacle by which we recognize that we anchor all of this in a greater purpose. In other words, all of this isn't really about us. It's the opportunity that by unlocking this level of consistent, sustained improvement, we have an opportunity to, to, to influence others in a positive way. In other words, to me, this courage, this thrive, this drive mindset is transferable. And it's contagious. I mean, yeah. the best athletes in the world make the guys and gals that they play with, I would argue, a little bit better. Well, just for our listeners, we're unwrapping all the gifts of the seven practices for navigating leadership in an impactful way covered in Arrive and Thrive. And I was thinking about you and thinking about what practice would I think she majors in. And the truth is, I hadn't made up my mind before we talked, but what's coming clear to me is I go back to the best self work, which is defined by where your strengths and talents come together with where you're called to add value to others, which comes together with where you experience joy and vitality. And therein, when those three things come together is your best self zone. The thing is, we teach people at Simmons how to really, really deeply understand your best self, how to Velcro to it and how to come back to her when you get kicked out mm-hmm. uh, and the surround is really well-being you, your last body of work was a lot about energy mm-hmm. i'm wondering what are the important things that our listeners should know about so they're hearing you talk they want to thrive i haven't met a human being who doesn't want to thrive molly right sure and, and they're said we're starting to give people clues mm-hmm. <laughs> what's the thing about energy at the most basic level Our level of demand, particularly as women, it's exceeding our capacity. 
And over time, when your level of demand is exceeding your capacity, it's not sustainable. And that's where people find themselves potentially challenged with burnout, exhaustion, fatigue. What do you do? What do you do? You have to look at your life through the lens of energy versus time. So I'll tell you a quick story. When I was an agent, which was almost 20 years, all of my athletes and coaches, we had about 300 athletes and coaches, they don't wake up every day and say, where am I going to spend my time? They wake up every day and say, what are the things that I need to do to perform at my best in my next game, in my next tournament, in my next match? That's what they think about. They're not obsessed with their calendars, but in business, what so was fascinating to me, I wrote my first book, I wrote a second one, and then I started speaking and we have training products. And it was amazing. My little sports-minded agent peahead comes out to the world and goes, whoa, this is weird. Business people are obsessed with their calendars. And, 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 and gosh, all I hear is these people go, why are I even in this meeting? This is such a waste of time. Or... Gosh, I'm so exhausted. And gal, I've got this huge pitch on Friday and, and I, I, I've been just grinding it all week. I'm fried. And I reflected back on one of my PGA Tour players. And I remember when we sat at the end of the season, I would sit with all my guys and gals and I would say, okay, let's, let's plan out our tournament schedule for the following season. And we would say, well, gosh, here's where we made the cut last year. Here's when the majors are. We know that we can play three weeks on, one week off. All right, now let's back into our schedule based on where I need to perform at my best. But yet business people just accept all these meetings, show up at all these meetings, and then the meetings that matter the most, they're toast for, they're not ready for, they're not prepared for, they're not in a position to perform at their best. So then I thought, well, gosh, what if we took some of this athlete mindset of looking at our lives through the lens of energy, could we position business people to perform better? So there's things in our lives, Susan, that give us energy, right? All of us. What are those? I would challenge people, write them down. Is it a workout? Is it meditation? Is it a walk with the dogs? And now there's things that give us energy that take a minute, 30 seconds, five minutes, an hour, 30 minutes, whatever they have, write them all down. All those things need to be protected in our calendars. Because if we don't control where we spend our energy, everybody else will decide for us. And then we have to pull back and say, what are the things that we see on our calendar? And we go, you got to be kidding me. Shoot me now. I don't want to go to that. I am. Are you kidding me right now? And what are those? And here's the reality. If those are back to back to back to back to back, which so many people do in the world, how do you think you're going to feel at the end of the day? Particularly if you haven't done the thing maybe in the morning, midday, mini breaks that give you energy. So my challenge, my hope for your listeners is that they pull back and make a list of the things that give you energy. Make a list of the things that drain your energy. Go out into your calendar for 30 days. Load in and protect the things that give you energy. Uh, Try to be more intentional navigating the things that drain your energy. Do only what you can do. Give everything else away, right? We don't need to, you know, this FOMO, right? I mean, we don't need to be and do everything. What can only you do? Ask yourself that question and then be present for those things. This requires us certainly to manage up and manage down. It requires us to have a level of intentionality. But I guarantee you, if people do that, what they will find at the end of one week is they're going to feel a lot better. And here's what the payoff is. Yeah. Not only do you perform better, but guess what? You get to the end of your day 
and you go home or you step into the room of the people in your life that matter most and you have energy for them. And you have energy for them. It's funny. I, uh, I've spoken to a lot of women all over the world and I love challenging women in particular, dare to disappoint, which, <laughs> which means, right? Yep. What are you going to say no to? Uh, totally. Nobody else can do it, right? So it's it's really owning that you actually don't have to do it all and that you can be choosy. By the way, I want to point out my prediction is that the tsunami of well-being that is hitting corporate America right now, which is much like the tsunami of leadership or even diversity and inclusion, right? So this is going to be, we're going to have chief wellness officers or chief well-being officers across the Fortune 500 in the next 10 years, I think, for sure. It's going to be just a standard operating procedure. I think what you just shared takes the mystery out of what well-being is. Well-being isn't meditating at noon because your workplace offers meditation or going to the workplace gym. Well-being is whatever you think well-being is. For sure. It comes down to energy and giving you permission, not just permission, but taking responsibility for your time and your energy. As opposed to feeling like I just can't lead from my best self. So, and having said that, I just want to name this crazy moment in time we have been in with this global pandemic. And so I'm wondering, like, as you work with leaders and traveling from company to company, what are the trends you're seeing that are emerging in our, I'm calling it a semi-post-pandemic working reality. We All I know for sure is that the future is hybrid. That I know for sure. And hybrid means a lot of different things. But what do you see and how can leaders engage in this context? I, like you, am fortunate I too speak about 80 days a year. And what I am seeing is uh, an abundance of attendance at these live events, candidly. I'm seeing 20%, 30% more people attending than they had before the pandemic. Which, which tells me that people miss being together. People, human beings need other human beings. I mean, that is a fundamental difference between us and other animals, if you will, at some level. We need to be together. And so I'm seeing this energy and this intentionality and this desire to get back together. But I'm also seeing a whole lot of leaders out there struggling who have 100,000 square foot campuses, buildings, and they're in an interesting spot because there's some people who've gotten a little taste of, man, it's kind of cool to run outside in between meetings, take my dog for a walk. It didn't got bad to throw a load of laundry in in between some conference calls. And people are resisting going back to the office. And so I had a, a mentor of mine once tell me, look, you can build a business remotely, but you can't build a culture. And I thought that was a really interesting point from a really smart woman. And so I think that's the thing that leaders have to consider is if we are in a hybrid environment moving forward, which I agree with you is probably our reality, we have to, as leaders, be remarkably intentional about building our culture. And what can that look like for you and your organization to ensure that you build a culture on purpose? You're going to have a culture. (laughs) But is it going to be the one you want? So it requires some intentionality in order to do that for sure. So do you have a definition for thriving? I'm just curious. Like, what is it to thrive to you? For me personally, it would be an an, an intrinsic desire to get better every day in order to make your greatest impact on the world and others. 
to me, to thrive, maybe it starts inside of each of us. But for me to thrive, it's to ensure that the work that I'm doing, the drive, the the opportunities, the experiences making the people around me and those I have an opportunity to influence a better version of themselves. So this speaks a little to what you said earlier about purpose. If there are listeners wondering, yeah, but how do I get that intrinsic drive? Like, how do I find out my purpose? What's your best advice? Well, uh, go to mollyfletcher.com and subscribe to my on-demand course called Up Your Game, which is eight keys to unlock your drive. Um, it's one way to do it. Welcome. I just led you right there. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't. I never do that, but that is one thing. And what I do in that course is I identify eight keys to do that. But in all seriousness, though, I think... You have to pull back and take the time and the energy to say, why am I here? What do I want my legacy to be? Who do I want at my 90th birthday party? What are my deepest core values? And then you have to pull back and say, and ask yourself some really difficult questions like that. What do I want on my tombstone? And then say, okay, now how do I create and cultivate my life's purpose, my life's mission. And then say, okay, if my mission for me personally is to lead, inspire, and connect with courage and optimism, that then becomes a filter by which we can vet our decisions, our opportunities, our challenges, tough calls, tough moments, tough meetings, all of the things that occur and show up in our lives. For me, I vet everything through. Can I lead, inspire, and connect with courage and optimism? And if I can, I'm going to say yes. If I can, I'm going to say no. But it also changes the way I show up maybe for a tough conversation with a family member or with my kids or whatever it is. So when we know what our purpose is, to me, we have to then back into, okay, well, how can I live into that? What are the behaviors? What are the daily things that I want to uncover, discover so that I can live into that? And that in turn, I think will help you align with the work that you do every day. And then I think once we do that, we've got to make sure that we have a mindset for possibility. We've got to stay curious. We've got to manage our energy more than our time. We've got to be resilient. We've got to be disciplined, all those things. But I think for somebody that's like, man, I, I'm stuck, you know, which is a lot of people right now, I think, yeah. sadly. Take some time to figure out your life's purpose. Pull back and get really clear on that. And then and then utilize that as a filter by which you can determine where you want to spend your energy and, and time and for who. I love that. It's such a nice overlay for the first practice, which is investing in your best selves. Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. I encourage people to take a deeper look at Molly's work, at your work, to, to think about best self. The other practices in Arrive and Thrive help you bring the manifestation of it all. I think things like courage and, and you talked about resiliency. So I guess a couple of final questions. It's so fun to talk to you. Number one is, can you share what your favorite all-time self-care practice is just to give people an idea of how Molly Fletcher takes care of Molly Fletcher? Well, I, I would say my favorite one is the calendar 
energy thing. I just, that I call it an energy audit that I just sort of walked through. And so what does that mean? That means me protecting time for the things that matter most in my calendar. Got my workouts, for example, which give me energy. Projected out for years, literally on my calendar. And I just protect that time in the morning over time consistently. So I go way out in time. And I think you definitely, and for me, like you, I mean, I have speaking holds in 2024. I have them in 20, late 2023. So if I don't get out ahead of these kinds of things, other people will decide where your energy goes. So that at the fundamental level is a really important piece, right? Get intentional about, about our calendars, our energy, and our time. That's one. And sunny vacations are really important. For That's right. Well-being. <laughs> the other thing, yeah. well, the other thing I would say that I do, Susan, is, and this is really a result of doing it wrong that I realized, man, I got to fix something, is I'm really intentional about the number of keynotes that I can do in a week without feeling exhausted or drained or like I'm disconnected from my family, my husband, my girls. So I had moments where I was doing two, you know, three, four a week. And that was just too much. And so I had to pull back. And it's too much of a good thing. Like, yeah, sure, totally. And so I had to, now we look at my speaking calendar in week buckets so that I can ensure that I'm not scheduling more than two to three a week. Or if I have a week of three, the next week I'm going to just have one. Or if I have a week. So intentionality around that is huge for me. Final thought, favorite piece of advice. Um, I guess I might say be courageous but don't try to be perfect. All right, be courageous. Don't try to be perfect. Listeners can find you online at? MollyFletcher.com. MollyFletcher.com. All right, Molly Fletcher, you are always fun, always engaging, always inspiring. You energize me and bring so much energy that rejuvenates other people to think about their energy. For that, I am so grateful. Thank you for shining your light brightly and inspiring me and our listening audience to do the same. Molly, all the best to you. And I can't wait to support you and to be in the world together thriving. I just, it's kind of cool to know you. So thank- oh, wow. You're kind. Thanks so much for having me, Susan. Super fun. Hope it helps folks.